Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're opening our Bibles this evening to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm really excited about entering in to a Sunday evening series on the book of Ephesians. We open our Bibles this evening to Ephesians chapter 1. Thank you to the ushers for getting those in your hands this evening. You'll want to follow along as we read, beginning in verse 1. And we read together, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word. Father, I pray first for the people in Pakistan, for the churches there. Lord, we know that we have no understanding at all of what so many are going through, but we thank you for bringing an ambassador here this evening to help us to lift our hearts to heaven and not just open our wallets and give as we do, but also to understand and to pray more effectively. Thank you for what you're doing. I pray, Lord, this evening that you'd help us to have confidence that even as Brother Asher has reminded us that this isn't the end, it's the beginning. We pray that we'd see that even this evening as we open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians and we see how you can build the faith in those that others would never expect to see come to Christ, how great things can be done for your name and for your glory through them. So remind us of that this evening and help us to go out from this service rejoicing. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Through the centuries, confinement has been the catalyst for many Christian conversations. Most of those conversations, whether they be in those cells of confinement or in written form or letters, communication has come out of those places of confinement that has impacted the world in amazing ways. Other than the Bible, the most frequently published book in all of the English language is Pilgrim's Progress. And you'll remember how that John Bunyan in a Bedford jail while in England, 1678, he would spend 10 years in jail, jailed because he was unwilling to get a license to preach. He felt like the calling of God should be a calling from heaven and not a licensure from men. While in that jail cell, he wrote his own personal testimony The Pilgrim's Progress, that has been published more than 250 million times and has been used as a gospel tract to bring many people to Jesus Christ as Savior. Savonarola was executed in 1498. As he spent time in that jail cell before his life would be taken from him, he would write two commentaries, one on Psalm 31, another on Psalm 51. I love the story of William Tyndale. William Tyndale spending time in a jail cell. This man, known to be chiefly responsible for bringing the Bible into the English language. In fact, much of what we read when we open our English Bibles today reflects on the translation work that was done by William Tyndale. While in the jail cell, he requested a copy of the Hebrew Bible, a copy of the Hebrew Concordance, a copy of the Hebrew dictionary, and he went to work in Bible translation work, and he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to the Pope, and he said to the Pope, if God spare my life ere many years, 
I would cause a boy that driveth a plow to know more of the Scripture than thou dost. He wanted the people who were in the fields to have God's Word, knowing that God's Word is powerful. We're opening our Bibles this evening to a book that was written from a prison cell. The author is in chains. He's chained in the imperial capital of Rome, and he's inspired to write by the Spirit of God. While there are many great books and many great letters and many great poems and much great literature that has come out of prison cells as Christians have found themselves in captivity, none can compare to the letter that we're opening this evening as we open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is one of, four's, one of four of Paul's prison epistles. Those prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. But Ephesians, one of those four prison epistles, is rather unique. In fact, of the 13 New Testament books written by the Apostle Paul, anyone who studies the book of Ephesians would have to say this book stands out. William Barclay calls Ephesians the queen of the epistles. C.H. Dodd refers to Ephesians as the crown of Paulinism. Dean Farrar, in his comments on Ephesians, says, in the depths of its theology and the loftiness of its morals, this epistle is unparalleled. William Hendrickson says, Ephesians is the distilled essence of the Christian religion. Ray Stedman speaks this way, Ephesians is in many ways the crown of glory of the New Testament. John Stott, a recent author, says the letter to the Ephesians is a marvelously concise yet comprehensive summary of the Christian good news and its implications. Nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and be challenged to consistency in their lives. Several remarkable phrases stand out to those who study the book of Ephesians carefully. Our position in Christ is referenced ten times. You'll find that phrase, in Christ. One other time you'll find the simple phrase, in Jesus. I attended a conference several years ago. I went intentionally because one of the professors that I had while in seminary was going to be speaking, and I liked him as a professor, and I hadn't seen him in many years. As I went to the conference during an open session, they were asking him questions. One of the questions they asked is, as he looked back on his years of teaching students of the Bible, was there anything that he felt he'd missed or would like to go back and do over? And he thought carefully, and then he said, I think if I could go back and do it over, I would spend more time considering what it means to be in Christ. Well, the book of Ephesians helps us to understand what it means positionally to be in Christ. In chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul writes to the faithful who are in Christ. In chapter 1 and verse 3, we discover that we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Our riches are spoken of five times in the book of Ephesians. In fact, Warren Wiersbe calls his book on the book of Ephesians, Be Rich. It's a good title because five times we discover the wonderful riches that we enjoy in Christ 
In chapter 1 and verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. In chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul calls the riches of Christ the unspeakable riches. Four times Ephesians speaks of heavenly places. In fact, many commentators who write on the book of Ephesians will capture this phrase and call their writings in heavenly places. A unique phrase, really, in the book of Ephesians. Again, in chapter 1 and verse 3, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And you should note by verse 3, it doesn't say God is going to bless us. It doesn't say God will bless us. It says God has blessed us in heavenly places. Six times the word mystery is found in the book of Ephesians. Twelve times there are references to grace in this wonderful epistle. We see grace from the very outset in verse 2, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The word glory is going to be found eight times in the book of Ephesians. He has blessed us with all glory, this God that we serve, with blessings in heavenly places He has chosen us, he says in verse 4, chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and without blame before him in love. He has blessed us and chosen us, predestined us in verse 5. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. The words and phrases that are used repeatedly in the book of Ephesians are used intentionally. You see, the book of Ephesians is written, you ready? It's written because God wants us to know what he's doing in heavenly places for those who are in Christ. What he is not only doing in heavenly places for those who are in Christ, but what he's doing in heavenly places through Jesus Christ for those who are in Jesus Christ forever. This is a phenomenal book. In Ephesians, believers discover the riches of their identity in Christ. I think if I were being asked, what's the theme verse of the book of Ephesians, I'd put a circle around verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Many of you are aware that Ephesians is a uniquely symmetrical book. The first three chapters and then the second three chapters. In the first three chapters, the believer's position is considered. In the last three chapters, the believer's practice comes into focus. In the first three chapters, we come to learn of our wealth in Christ. In the last three chapters, we come to understand our walk in Him, that we would walk worthy of our high calling, the practical part, if you will. In the first three chapters, the Christian's privilege is discovered. And then in the last three chapters, the believer's conduct. Great doctrine, then great duties. The finished work of Christ, the faithful walk of the believer. Our identity in Christ, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Our responsibility in Christ. How many here have ever had the privilege of visiting the Grand Canyon? You ever seen the Grand Canyon? Lots of people have. I still and will always remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. It literally took my breath away. Not just because I was looking down one mile into the ground, 
but because I was a youth pastor and I was accompanying teens to the Grand Canyon. Did you know that teens think it's a cool thing to run toward the rim of the Grand Canyon to see how far out they can throw a rock? And did you know that there are no fences around the Grand Canyon? And I was expected to bring all those teenagers back at the end of that trip. I can literally say when I first saw the Grand Canyon, it took my breath away. It's a majestic thing to behold, the depths of the beauty of God so chiseled out in the earth. How many have ever been to the top of one of the Rocky Mountains, perhaps up Mount Evans or Pikes Peak? Have you ever made that trip, 14,000 feet up in the air? I've made that trip many times. One time I took my father on a trip in a church van up Mount Evans, 14,000 feet up in the air. He, being from West Virginia, thought he'd seen mountains. I wanted to make sure that he'd seen some real mountains. And I made sure that as we traveled up, he was sitting in the passenger side right near the edge of of the road as we went up that mountain. It was a beautiful thing. And the higher we went and the more wonders we were exposed to, the more joyous it was. You know, There are some deep things that we can see in this earth, and there's some high things that we can see in this earth that can take our breath away. But as we open the book of Ephesians, we look into the depths of the love of God. Then we ascend up into the heavenlies. This book is filled with inexpressible glory. Opening Ephesians is like opening a vault filled with treasure. We have to go carefully. We we have to go slowly because we don't want to miss any nugget along the way. We read two verses from the book of Ephesians this evening. I timed it before the service. I know that to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 aloud takes something around 13.4 seconds. But in those 13.4 seconds, those first two verses themselves introduce us to something that's wonderful. In the first two verses of the book of Ephesians, Paul's greeting reveals just a little bit of the amazing grace of the God that we serve. We ought to consider as we open this book the person who wrote it. We read in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of the Father. We get used to reading such a greeting. After all, Paul's the author of 13 of the 27 New Testament books. We have to pause here and consider we're we're reading something that's amazing. Who is it, after all, that's going to take us down to the depths of God's love, up into the heights of the heavenlies? Who is this man that has been given the opportunity to read this, to write, rather, this book that we're reading this evening? Does he have qualification to share the things that we read in the book of Ephesians? He claims, after all, to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's claiming to be one of the elite forces. Jesus called the twelve and called them apostles. And one who came out of due season, Saul of Tarsus, ah, that's how we first get introduced to this fellow. And we have to ask the question as we enter into Ephesians, is he worthy of writing this book? And we come to discover, of course, that Paul's testimony is a testimony of the amazing grace of God. In Acts chapter 7, it's Saul of Tarsus who stands with the clothing of those who have just stoned Stephen, the church's martyr, first martyr, the clothing of Stephen at his feet. Saul of Tarsus, a Benjaminite, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, named after Israel's first king, Saul. King Saul was also of Benjamin, Saul of Tarsus, of the same tribal ancestry. King Saul would give his scepter to David. Saul of Tarsus would give his life to David's son and become the apostle Paul. Saul the king, the first king of Israel, was a giant physically. Saul of Tarsus, also of the same tribe as Saul the king, was a giant intellectually. And we discover him in Acts chapter 7 with a tremendous hatred toward the church. And so as you open Acts chapter 8, you read that he was yet breathing out slaughters against the church. With letters in hand to give him authority, he went under the authority of the Sanhedrin to search out Christians, the followers of the way, to hail them, the Bible says in the book of Acts, out of the houses where they were trying to stay and hide from Saul. He had with him the soldiers of the Sanhedrin, perhaps some of the same soldiers who had gone into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest our Lord Jesus Christ that night that he sweat those great drops of blood. Saul of Tarsus was a man of renown among the Sanhedrin. He was great in the faith of Israel. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. And then something wonderful happened, right? The book of Acts chapter 9 tells us that that Pharisee of, that, of the Pharisees, that rabbi so highly regarded, was smitten by the great light of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he falls off his horse, he cries out, What would thou have me to do, Lord? Everything changes. Saul means the great one. Now he's Paul, the little one. And to the church that he addresses himself, he calls himself an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what an important phrase that we read by, by the will of God. There's no earthly reason that this man would be writing this book except by the will of God. You see, the person who wrote Ephesians experienced a miraculous conversion. When we ask, how is he qualified to write this book and explore these depths of the heart of God, the answer comes immediately. He experienced a miraculous conversion. At first, the Christians rightfully were afraid of him. He was, after all, the chief persecutor of the church. And God in Acts chapter 9 says to Ananias, I want you to go to that street called Straight. There you'll find Saul. Behold, he prays. As an infant cries out for nourishment, even so a new believer cries out for the nourishment of the Spirit. God was answering the prayers of Saul in his blindness physically, and yet a light that had dawned upon him spiritually. Ananias comes in the room calls him Brother Saul, and his blindness fell away. Behold, he prayed. What a miraculous conversion. What a marvelous commission he was given. The great persecutor becomes the great preacher. In Ephesians chapter 1, he calls himself an apostle. But the commission that God gave to Paul is unique. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, the apostle Paul helps us to understand just a little bit of what God entrusts him with. In Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, by revelation, God made known unto him the mystery, 
as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by his Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ by the gospel. There's a mystery that God has revealed to Paul. Paul was told to write to reveal that mystery so that we tonight can begin to consider it. It's a mystery that has something obviously to do with Christ. It's the mystery of Christ according to verse 4. And in verse 9 we read, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Christ Jesus. I can't wait to look at Ephesians chapter 3 together with you and talk about the mystery that the Apostle Paul has been commissioned to open up so that we can understand our identity in Christ, that the Jew and the Gentile together have been blended in this common body by the baptism of the Spirit of God into a church for an eternal future purpose. Uh, God used a battered, bruised, afflicted, locked up, stone for dead apostle by the name of Paul to fulfill this commission of helping us understand an eternal mystery that will cause the angels to be spellbound. The Apostle Paul was, after all, while he writes this letter, in a miserable condition. He's writing from a prison cell. And so we read in chapter 3 and verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. In chapter 4 and verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. And in chapter 6 and verse 20, he uses a unique phrase when he says, I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. God takes the soul of this man and allows this man's soul to be smitten by the Spirit of God in order to open his eyes to things that otherwise we could never imagine. When we ask the question, what fits this man? What suits this man? Why can this man be the author of this great book? Well, his conversion, his commission, even the condition from which he writes. He's in a Roman prison. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul where he was, he would answer the question 11 times in this book, I'm in Christ. If you ask him, and Paul, what's your condition? He'd say, I'm in the heavenlies. Perhaps somebody in this room this evening has a friend that you've almost given up on. Their heart seems so hard that you wonder if they'll ever come to the Lord. Come back with me to Romans chapter 16 for just a moment. Obviously, it takes our breath away to think about the Apostle Paul, this man who writes the book of Ephesians. As we open our Bibles to Romans 16, the Apostle Paul is greeting so many different friends that he has in Rome, name after name after name, beginning in verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers. Likewise, greet the church that's in their house, verse 5. Salute my well-beloved Penitus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia unto, unto Christ. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us, verse 7. Salute Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles who were also in Christ before 
me. The Apostle Paul's going to write about somebody else in verse 11. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. What's he saying? He's saying, I had family members. Some of my family members, he's saying in verse 7, Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. I have family members that are in prison just as Paul is in Ephesians. And they were in Christ before me. These family members of Saul of Tarsus, that chief rabbi who had those letters from the Sanhedrin to go and hail people out of homes and arrest them, what do you think those family members were doing when they understood that it was their relative who was wreaking havoc of the church, who was responsible for the death of Stephen? What do you think they were doing? I think I know what they were doing. I think they were praying for Saul of Tarsus to come to Christ as Savior. Don't ever give up on someone for whom you're praying. I think it's well for us to say, if God could save Saul of Tarsus, God can save anyone. So this man who writes this book writes to a people that he loves much. The people who receive this letter are like Saul testimonies of God's grace. Back in chapter 1 and verse 1 of the book of Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, to the faithful which are in Christ. There are some ancient manuscripts that leave out the word Ephesus and don't identify Ephesus as the city to which this letter has been written. I understand that. Most trans- translations, as well as most manuscripts, do include the word Ephesus. Why is it left out of some and included in others? Well, it certainly seems that Ephesus was the first church to receive this letter. And then from this church at Ephesus, this letter was intended to be spread throughout the world. Why Ephesus? Well, he wrote to Ephesus because it's a place that he loves, and he wrote to Ephesus because Ephesus, the home of the Ephesians, was a very important city in its day, home to some 500,000 people, home to philosophers, painters, and poets, home to the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, one of the great seven wonders of the world. The temple of Artemis, 418 feet by 220 feet, 127 columns standing 60 feet up into the air. My wife and I had the privilege of going to Vienna, Austria, and in Vienna, Austria, we went to a museum where the Viennese archaeologists had brought back the splendor of Ephesus. They did the digs of Ephesus, and we had the joy of walking through Ephesus in Vienna. It was an amazing thing. The splendor of this grand city was beyond description. Apostle Paul spent over two years there. First, he spent three months in a synagogue, and then being kicked out of the synagogue, he went to the school of Tyrannus. There at the school of Tyrannus, for two years, he shared the way, the good news. His name became famous in Ephesus, so famous that there was a great stirring. You remember how in the book of Acts, we're told in chapter 19 that the artisans who were making their livelihood by carving figurines of the goddess Diana, the fertility goddess, 
were upset because they weren't making any money. People weren't buying their images of the goddess Diana any longer, and they were chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And so the Apostle Paul moved on, but the ministry that he'd left there moved on as well, for the people there became saints. Paul addresses them as saints nine times in the book of Ephesians. Now, you might be surprised to see the word saint used that way. After all, there are some who practice the tradition of believing that no one can be called a saint until after they die. And then even after they die, it has to be proved by digging them up and seeing how much they've decomposed in those years. I don't make this up. And then there has to also be proven by testimony from the time in which they lived that they did some kind of miracle, and then and only then they can be called a saint. But the Apostle Paul calls the Ephesian people saints, and we ask the question this evening, are you a saint? If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you are. H.A. Ironside said, we don't become saints by saintliness, but we should be characterized by saintliness because we're saints. We have been made saints positionally in Christ, and the people to whom he writes are faithful people. The description that's given to them in verse 1, unto the faithful in Christ Jesus simply means that they are part of the faith. And oh, how the Apostle Paul loved the Ephesians. I love the picture that's painted in Acts chapter 20 when the Apostle Paul knows that it's his last journey near the city of Ephesus, knowing that it would be too dangerous for them and for him to go back into that city. He calls for the elders of Ephesus to come to him, and he meets with the elders of Ephesus, and he warns them, He says, after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in, not sparing the flock. The Bible tells us that the elders of the city of Ephesus wept on the Apostle Paul's neck as they embraced him, thanking him that he brought the gospel there. These are the people to whom he writes. They are dear people. And of all the people on the planet (laughs) to become saints, no one would have expected the Ephesians after all. In that city, they worshiped Diana, the fertility goddess, and the awful, terrible deeds that were accomplished in her name shouldn't even be shared in a service such as ours. But there's a purpose for this letter. Did you catch it there in verse 2? We read it by so quickly. We become used to it in the letters of the Apostle Paul when he writes, grace be to you and peace. You see, we receive grace at the moment of our salvation. It's the unmerited favor of God that's given to us who are undeserving. And the grace of God, according to Titus chapter 2, that bringeth salvation appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, justly, and righteously in this present age, and we receive peace because of our salvation. You see, apart from the forgiveness given by God, there can be no peace. God alone is the author and giver of true peace. And today, as we meet this evening and open up the book of Ephesians, we realize that the voice of the mighty Apostle Paul, while it was frail in its lifetime, has been silenced in ours. While his voice has faded, the words that God inspired him to write yet remain in their thrilling words. From a Roman prison cell, even in the first two verses of this book, you can almost hear the anthem, Amazing Grace. Amazing that Saul of Tarsus would have the privilege of writing such a book. Amazing that Ephesian people who had worshipped the goddess Diana would have the privilege of being called saints. 
that God in his amazing way can save people like Paul and people like the Ephesians with the purpose of giving them grace and peace. May it always be to us amazing. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.